You washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. one step closer every day Till I finally see your face I long for your embrace It keeps me... Welcome to our second From Home episode. Okay, so I had an episode pretty much ready to go for the end of May. And then on Memorial Day, May 25th, George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police officers. And the rage mixed with grief boiled over here in the Twin Cities. This horrific moment has now turned into a movement for racial justice, which I am committed to being a part of by listening and learning and acknowledging my contributions to systemic racism. So in light of all that has happened since May 25th, coupled with the still very real ongoing pandemic, I decided to take some time to rethink and revamp this episode. So here now is a collection of reactions and reflections and memories from our cast, including a new contributor, Don Brody, plus my conversation with our special guest, registered nurse, Sarah Lynn. Breathe in, breathe out, that's what I'm told, life is about. Listen. I don't think one race is capable of wiping away the whole world with a pandemic. That's just ridiculous. My little sister was attacked by a group of kids. And and while one of them laughed, another recorded the incident of their friend punching my sister. She wasn't looking for trouble. Just simply walking to the corner store. Yes, she was attacked from behind out of nowhere. I felt so helpless that I couldn't do anything for her. I couldn't be there to stop it. And on top of that, these were minors, so it wasn't like the police could do much. As an Asian American, I am scared to leave my house. Not only because of the virus, but also because of the xenophobia. (laughs) You know, I make sure to wear my mask and gloves if I do have to go out. You know, in hopes it will lessen the possibilities of getting harassed. I mean, I don't know if it really helps my case, but I know people see me as a walking virus. If I see too many cars in the parking lot of the grocery store, I will find another one that is less occupied. Hard to do, but it's possible. And yeah, I know, less people doesn't mean less chance of getting harassed, but you know, it really helps my anxiety. And and hopefully I can tell the person off better, you know? I am not a virus. I'm American too! I have the same chances of catching it as you do. I'm working on my comebacks and how to handle these possible scenarios in my head. But listen, as annoying as this is, there's another issue that I hope we all are aware of. Right now, 
There is discrimination against our black brothers and sisters in China. For some reason, there is this stupid belief that they are the ones who brought the virus to China. Are you serious? <laughs> to everybody listening, it is no one's fault that this atrocious pandemic is here, hurting us and killing us. Stop having the need to blame someone else for your hurting. There is not a person or people to blame for this tragedy, because whether we are white, black, or olive, COVID doesn't care. It's killing all of us. Hi, thanks for calling the Anger Hut. With the easing of shelter in place, we are preparing to reopen soon. Well, partially reopen, and we are so excited to see you again. All staff will wear masks, of course, and the Anger Hut will respect six feet social distancing guidelines. So wear your mask and come on down. Also, gloves. Wear gloves. And when you get to the Anger Hut, please follow all directional signs and one-way signs. We've installed plexiglass around the reception area and other waiting areas, and, and we'll need to take your temperature before you are allowed in. But come on down! Also, don't bring cash. No cash transactions. And we ask that you stay for only an hour. Uh, consider visiting at non-peak hours. And we will, of course, be sanitizing all the rooms between visits. Okay, so come on down. We will only actually allow six of you in at a time and then ask that you wait in line outside six feet apart you know, with your masks and your gloves. And just follow these simple directions. And come on. You know what? You I. We're not going to have the restrooms open or the vending machines, water fountains, no free coffee. I mean, that makes sense, right? So also just no socializing, just take your temperature, walk in, punch something and then leave. And then we hope that all of this, just, what are we doing? This is ridiculous. Stay home and punch something. Honestly, come on. Namaste. Yeah, I need, I need to re-record I was born in Compton, California. I've always claimed Tucson, Arizona as my hometown because that's where I grew up. I was 18 months old when we left California. Whenever the question of my birthplace comes up and I say Compton, the initial response is often a pause, like they're not sure if I'm kidding. Or, or I might get, oh, you mean you're straight out of Compton? Right, I am. My father was a Methodist minister, and his first assignment as a head pastor was with Enterprise Methodist Church in Compton. My parents moved there in 1952. My sister was born shortly thereafter. I came along in 56, and my younger brother in 58. I don't remember my first 18 months in Compton, but there are family stories and pictures. White flight had already begun when my father was assigned by the Methodist Conference to Enterprise Church. Always seeing the world through the lens of humanity, he had a hard time understanding why the white members of the church were selling their homes and leaving the neighborhood. He actively sought out the new black families moving in by going door to door to personally invite them to worship at the church. He hoped that they might feel welcome to join this neighborhood congregation. You know, I don't remember the part in the Bible where Jesus says, Thou shalt love only certain neighbors. Hmm. My dad would tell the story of a particular Sunday, looking out from the front of the church and seeing the first black family walking in through the doors. Wow, they actually came. There was the church board meeting where an elder member stated that he would have a problem 
personally if the church became more integrated, silencing the room. But, he added, he also wouldn't have anything to do with a church who would close its doors to anybody. Many longtime members stayed with the church after the neighborhood became more integrated. Others left. So, new bonds were formed and new friends were made, like the David Scotts. David was the lay leader of the church, who eventually became a Methodist minister himself. After about six years in Compton, my father was reassigned to a church in Tucson to take over the campus ministry there. The Methodist church moves their ministers around every so many years. It's a John Wesley circuit writer thing. When I was about seven or eight, I remember going back to Compton and visiting the David Scotts. They had a son named David and a daughter named Susan, just like my brother and me, and around our same ages. We were like black and white twins. You know, if twins had the exact same names. Our fathers kept in touch for years, but we Susan Scotts never did. I don't know. Maybe we were too young and lived too far away to create any kind of a bond. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Recently, while filling out an application over the phone, I was asked where I was born. And when I said Compton, California, there was that familiar pause. This time I heard myself saying, it was the 50s, a different time. Oh, right, they said. And after I got off the phone, I thought, wait, what did I just say? And why? I believe it's called systemic, Susan. In my dark moments, I think about how the world lies in wait to victimize my daughter. She's not yet two years old. She falls into your arms without a flicker of distrust. She hugs anything that stands still long enough. She has a bright smile, blonde hair, and white skin. I am no idiot. I know there are devils who would snatch her, hurt her, who would break her, wreck her body, her heart, her future, in exchange for some act of pleasure or profit. I stand between her and those devils as I simultaneously encourage her to love the world, to move through it without fear. I share this with you now because it is my access point of empathy for parents raising children with black skin. I cannot imagine how my fear would grow if the world didn't salaciously desire my daughter, but also systematically hated her. A world that didn't just leer at her from shadows with perversion, but came at her with rage and fists and generations of hostility. They kneeled on his neck. They crushed the life out of him. So many people were there, and he was begging for help. He was unarmed, he was nonviolent, accused of no violence. The world, our world, in the middle of a pandemic when we are all so fixated on breath. If I had black skin, if I had a child with black skin, I can only imagine how grievously difficult the task of walking through, let alone loving this world, would be. I am grieving, I am angry, I am guilty. I'm also listening. No justice, no peace. In response to the murder of George Floyd, New Dawn Theater here in town created A Breath for George, a powerful outdoor screening event full of songs and interviews and poems. Regina is part of this work with a searing rendition of a Nina Simone classic, 
recorded outside in front of a mural of George Floyd's six-year-old daughter, Gianna. Brown baby, brown baby, as you grow up, I want you to drink from the plenty cup. I want you to stand up tall and proud and I want you to speak up clear and loud brown baby brown baby as he want you to go with your head up high. I want you to live by the justice code. And I want you to march down freedom. safe in my arms till your daddy and your mama protect you and keep you safe from harm you little brown baby it makes me glad you're gonna have all the things, all the things that I never had. When out of all men's hearts, all hate is hurled. Sweetie, you're gonna live in a better Sarah Lynn is a registered nurse at an acute care hospital here in the Twin Cities. A mutual friend shared several posts Sarah had written about her experiences on the front lines of the coronavirus. In one particular post, Sarah detailed a heart-wrenching account of working two shifts where there weren't enough ICU beds available for the extremely sick COVID patients. Doctors were put in the position of having to make very difficult decisions as to who needed the beds most. The post garnered close to 8,000 shares. Yeah, that was definitely 
a rough couple of days, um, you know, not just for myself, but for my coworkers, for the residents, for everybody. We just were struggling so hard to help everybody and there wasn't enough to go around. And, um, you know, unfortunately some patients expired, which was pretty heartbreaking. And, you know, I just, I knew of patients that needed an ICU level of care and there was no bed for them. And just seeing that, and then, you know, later on when I was off work, going into a store and seeing barely anyone wearing a mask. I mean, it was me and one store associate. And it, you know, it was like going into the twilight zone, like the contrast from what it's like when I'm at work and seeing all these sick people that are crashing right in front of our eyes and seeing the harsh reality of COVID and then going out into the public and seemingly like, like nothing's happening. Like nobody cares. They're they're not masking up. They're not maintaining social distance. They are giving me dirty looks because I'm wearing a mask or, you know, what have you. And I just, the contrast was too much. I can't even explain what that was like. So I created this post because I felt like maybe the public just doesn't know, like it's not, it's not out there how, how close we already are to being like a New York or a New Jersey or a Washington. Cause it really scared me. And, you know, obviously like the successive shifts, disaster units were opened and things did get better. But the problem with viruses is they come in waves, you know, we're going to see another surge and it likely will be worse than the first. Um, we're kind of just getting into this. So um, I don't know. I just started out as a private post and a lot of my coworkers and friends were begging to share it because they thought the message was really important. And I mean, my, my goal was, you know, not to slam my hospital or what we're doing or anything like that. It was to try to put some ownership and responsibility back on the community, you know, to help us out. Like we, <laughs> we can't do this alone. We can't just handle this huge influx of patients and assume that there's going to be enough for everybody. No, this needs to be a team effort. Like we really need the community to help mitigate some of this and help us out. So we don't have to go through days like that. And we don't have to see patients that don't have access to ICU beds when they need them. It's so hard on the residents and doctors and it's it's so hard on them you know and I, I give them every bit of credit for handling it with grace and professionalism and you know knowing that they're having to talk to these families about making some really really hard decisions you know it's incredibly hard for families to make those decisions when they can't see their family member they they're just in disbelief like like no they can't be that sick they can't you know but the reality of it is without an ICU bed it would almost be cruel to run a code on somebody. If you have no vent and you have no bed for somebody, you know, doing CPR, it's, it's pretty brutal. It, it's rough. You know, um, people have been known to have rib fractures and bruising and a lot of pain associated with, you know, a post-cardiac arrest, advanced life care kind of situation where we're pulling them back. Um, and then, yeah, like to what end, if there's no ventilator for them, that's scary. And, you know, I know that it was just one snapshot in time and people might go, oh, well, it's better now. You don't know, but shifts like that are huge red flags that we are headed for big trouble if we don't keep it under control, you know. Though the availability of proper protective equipment is improving, nurses are still lacking all they need to feel safe. I asked Sarah if it's scary to be working without appropriate protective gear. Sometimes it is. I think, you know, when you're there, 
you put on your brave nurse face. <laughs> you just do the best you can for your patients. But um, it's kind of in the quiet times or like in my drive home in my car um, or on my days off that I feel the fear the most. You know, then I have time to process my feelings. You're so busy when you're on the floor. Like mm. there's not much time to think about anything but the work at hand. Um, but yeah, when I'm around my family, when I'm, you know, able to just kind of be with myself, that's when I feel scared. Because of the shortages of equipment, we were relegated to wearing nothing but like standard surgical masks in COVID rooms, COVID positive patients, and you get mixed assignments. So it's scary to think that I may be becoming exposed because of this lack of proper PPE, but then I have to go and take care of other patients that don't have it. And, you know, I have a moral obligation to take care of everybody, whether COVID or not. They need me too. People are still getting sick. They're coming with heart attacks, trauma, sepsis, you know, all those things are still happening. They haven't stopped because of COVID. And it just breaks my heart. And it is extremely worrisome that if I'm not protecting myself like I should in these rooms, I could pick it up and give it to those patients. Sarah uses the term moral injury, the emotional toll of knowing that she could be the mechanism of injury. She could be the hazard and or the carrier of the virus to her patients. We become medical professionals. We become nurses and doctors because we care about people. You know, I can't even tell you how many patients or people have said to me, you couldn't pay me enough to do what you do, you know, and yeah. it's true. You can't, <laughs> um, you do it because you care for people. You love people. And like I say, I have, when I'm accepting an assignment, I am accepting responsibility for those patients, for their lives. The day that I went for a mask and N95 so I could go take care of my COVID patient and that cabinet was empty. That was the most hollow feeling because, you know, it's not as simple as saying, oh, I'm not going to go in that room. I don't have the right mask. You know, there's a human being on the other side of that door that I just took responsibility for, that I care about, that I want to go treat, you know, fever's rising, they could be having breathing troubles, like you need to go take care of them. So at that point, you just really don't have a choice. You're put in this contradictory situation where I know this isn't safe, but this person needs my care. I know that it's not safe for my other patients that don't have COVID, but they need my care. Yeah, it's just, it's a constant struggle. I asked Sarah about the governing bodies like OSHA, who typically oversee workplace safety. In a hospital setting with an extremely high viral load, where are they? That I don't know. I mean, we really feel abandoned. We really do. I did hear, I think one of the hospitals was getting some citations from OSHA, but before COVID, there were such strict rules. And now we're doing things that, you know, just fly in the face of best practice. And, you know, of all the infection control measures we learned and, and have been taught to practice. And it's unbelievable. The higher viral load you're exposed to with any virus dictates kind of how sick you're going to get. The more virus there is in your system, the more it can overwhelm you. So yeah, I mean, I've heard some press that that's why healthcare professionals are dying. Young, healthy people that didn't have comorbidities or pre-existing conditions just because there was that much in them, it overwhelmed them. Um, at the height of their illness, that's when they have the most virus in their body. That's when they're shedding the most virus. 
So yeah, to, to constantly come into contact with that without proper PPE is a huge concern. She told me about a COVID patient of hers the night before who was managing one minute and then crashing the next. It feels awful. I mean, yeah. you in the moment are doing everything you can think of to support that patient and they're still declining. They're still in respiratory distress. They're yeah. still, you know, it feels like like sand slipping through your fingers. You're trying so hard to grasp it, but they're just, they're slipping and you can't stop it. And, you know, there is a feeling of, of sadness and emptiness when that patient gets transferred. Like, could I have done more, you know, um, or things weren't there that you needed? Like, why weren't they there? Why, you know, didn't I have all the support that I needed? And if I had, could it have been different? Sarah is a mother of four. Her oldest is in their early 20s, and her youngest is three. She has trained her three-year-old that mommy is wearing icky, dirty clothes when she comes home from work, so her daughter won't run to her until she's had the chance to change. I mean, even before COVID, you know, we're working really closely with patients that aren't always in control of their bodily functions. They, they throw up, they're incontinent, they're, you know, um, I was already getting exposed to bodily fluids before this. You just don't know what you've been exposed to all the time. So yeah, I kind of, even before this, I'd always trained her that mommy needs to change her clothes first before she kind of runs up and climbs on me and stuff like that, just because I don't want her exposed to things, which was fine because that felt like a controllable factor. But and now like being exposed and, you know, really running the risk of contracting this, I'm afraid to even breathe on her. You know, like, how can I control that? I can't, can't withhold love from a three-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's something that really eats away at you. You know, all of my family, I hug my other kids. My husband and I have stopped kissing. I don't kiss my husband anymore. I don't feel safe being affectionate with him. That's hard. We yeah. are paying the price for this in a lot of different ways. And what about those flyovers and all those other gestures to honor our healthcare workers? I'd rather have extra staff on the floor. <laughs> I'd yeah. rather, you know, have more PPE. Those are the kinds of things that would matter to me right now. I appreciate the sentiment, like everyone calling us heroes. I, I do appreciate the sentiment. I, I get it. But at the same time, you know, I'm just trying to do my job and I just want to do it safely. That's how I feel. Like it's almost a bit uncomfortable to get this like status. And then it also makes me a bit concerned that, you know, it will just make our casualties acceptable somehow. Yeah, we, yeah. we've been failed miserably, you know, by the entire system. And people should be angry. They shouldn't, you know, hold us up as, as martyrs. I don't right. want to be a martyr. Right. <laughs> no. You know, if something happens to me, I want, I want people to use it to make change. Then on May 25th, George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin and three other Minneapolis police officers. Well, first of all, you know, my heart just breaks. Watching that video was one of the hardest things I've seen in a long time. You know, um, there was talk of maybe substances being in his system and stuff like that. And I just, I, I couldn't even hear that because, you know, at the hospital, we, we deal with patients that are high on drugs, drunk maybe both, like all the time. And some of them get quite combative, quite out of control. They're, you know, they're not themselves. And we would never, ever, ever treat a human being like that. 
Like it was just completely devastating, you know, not only as a human being, but as a medical professional to like watch him take his last breath. You know, I, I could tell, and it's, it's been really hard on all of us um, at the hospital. I will say that every day we're having a moment of silence for George Floyd. You know, like I say, a lot of the majority of our patient population is people of color. And a lot of my coworkers, you know, persons of color, a lot of different backgrounds. Um, it has been devastating to already see the black and brown populations just be devastated by the pandemic. COVID greatly affecting them far more than any other populations here. And then now this, it just, it just feels like being gutted, you know, like that, that day, I just felt so hollow. And then yeah, to, to see the protests, I mean, it makes me feel really torn because I am with them, like heart and soul. I am with this cause. I would love to go out there myself. Like I say, I worry, like maybe I would be a hazard to the people around me <laughs> because of what I do for a living. Um, I'm still considering it just because the pull to do something has been so strong. You know, I've been doing what I can from my home, but um, I, I still feel the need to be out there supporting and showing my face and showing my support. But so the reality is that there's no data that tells us really how effective these cloth masks are. So like, even if people are wearing them, I mean, logic tells us that yes, it probably would help reduce the spread because you would hope that it would be reducing like droplets and, and germs and things coming out of people's airways and into the air. Um, but especially without social distancing, which in a lot of the videos you can see is definitely not happening. There's some concern. Yeah. I mean, like I say, it, it's a two-sided coin. It's kind of like the cause is so great and so just, like you can't really look down on anyone for being out there. But at the same time, you're like, oh, but COVID. <laughs> so yeah, it's a lot of mixed feelings. I... I just pray that, you know, hopefully all the experts and all of us are wrong. <laughs> Maybe there's not going to be a huge surge and we're, you know, and I'm not going to be proven right. That would be my greatest wish to not be proven right and for everybody to, to be okay after all of this. Um, I have ha I have felt somewhat uplifted for the first time in a while since the pandemic started, just seeing all the support and seeing, you know, people in other countries protesting and standing up and saying, hey, this is not okay. And just, just watching the world kind of come together. Like, that's a feeling I haven't had for a while, being sort of hopeful and uplifted about something, you know, because like I say, like, these are my patients and they're my friends and they're my coworkers and they're my children. My children are biracial. So we've heard about Sarah's three-year-old and now the rest of the family. You know, um, my, my biracial children are older, actually technically two of them are adults. <laughs> um, and then the third is an older teenager. So yeah, we've been having a lot of dialogue and you know, we wholeheartedly agree on a lot of stuff. Um, I think the violence was hard. You know, uh, one of my kids in particular was pretty affected by some of the violence that was happening, the riots, um, and then just some things that were being posted on social media, like, suburbs you're next you know and my kid got really freaked out and was afraid somebody was going to break into our house and you know I think already so difficult to feel targeted as a brown skin person you know he's always been wary of the police um just because you know George is definitely not the first we know there's a whole laundry list of names 
So definitely, uh, especially, you know, a young adult biracial male is, yeah, very nervous around the police or, or just the thought of being pulled over. Yeah, I mean, there was one day where I had to actually call into work and just stay home with my kids just to kind of help them feel that, help them have a day where things are just safe and secure. And, you know, I work downtown and I was supposed to be working an evening shift that day too. So meaning I'm not going to be leaving campus until around midnight. And for my kids that are old enough to understand everything that's going on and, and they have their own phones, they have access to the internet, they've seen videos and posts and things like that. Like it was, it was just too much for them. They were really struggling that day. So, so we just came home and we said, no devices. We are taking a break from all of this today. We kind of need just some time to reset and maybe just spend some time outside and feel that there are still some things that are right in the world <laughs> and in nature and just kind of reset because yeah it was it was reaching ahead for us all emotionally i guess i feel partially i feel like that's our privilege to be able to do that and my heart breaks for like george floyd's family who can't do that right now I think really one of the most uplifting things that we've seen so far was um, during George Floyd's service here in Minneapolis, Reverend Al Sharpton, amazing speaker and activist, and his his speech about a different time and a different season was so powerful and moving and so true. We, we have come a ways. We just, we got to go the rest of the way. <laughs> So I think that was an amazing message for the youth to hear. The protests, you know, as much as it's a big concern for spreading COVID, they are cathartic, they are therapeutic. Um, and I think it's really important for, you know, especially our youth to feel like they have that voice, like they're making some change. Yeah. We created a movement on the island called WW Shush. When women show up, shit happens. It's all about celebrating women who show up. Sarah Lynn is showing up, despite the huge risks to her health and those of her family. Regina Williams is showing up by lending her powerful voice to this time. And Darnella Frazier showed up. Darnella is the 17-year-old who stood in front of the Cup Foods at 38th and Chicago and filmed the slow suffocation of George Floyd. She stood there with her phone in her hands and her nine-year-old cousin by her side and captured the entire eight minutes and 46 seconds of a black man's life being snuffed out under a knee. Witnessing this death has to have been extremely traumatic for Darnella. And I understand she's received a lot of pushback. People saying that she should have done something to stop the cops or that she shouldn't have filmed at all. Darnella, your courage gave us an eyewitness account that we needed to see to believe. Reports only from the scene would not have been enough. We needed to see and hear all eight minutes and 46 seconds. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Darnella Frazier. Thank you for showing up. You have allowed us around the world to collectively grieve and call for action. And that's how real shit happens. God bless you. When out of all men's hearts, all hate is hurled, sweetie, you're gonna live. 
in a better world. Prom, baby. Prom, baby. Thank you to Sarah Lynn. I so appreciate your commitment and your candor, Sarah. Please, please, please take care. And thank you to our contributors, Day Yang, Shannon Custer, Zippy Lasky, Regina Williams, and our new contributor, Don Brody. Our show is sponsored by Flip'em the Bird. When you don't have the words, let your gloves say it for you. Shop their fingerless gloves, ball caps, and t-shirts at flipemthebird.com. Also, a big shout out to our male ally, Tony Axel, for his amazing audio mastering. And if you would like to offer support or donate or get involved in some way during this very important time, we have a list of organizations on our website for you to do just that. So just go to islandofdiscardedwomen.com. We so look forward to seeing you live again, which we pray will be very soon. But in the meantime, please stay safe, please stay well, and stay tuned for our next episode of Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Prom, baby. Prom.